Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, Materials Specialist at the Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark. Hey, Heather. How are you doing? You just got back from Europe, didn't you? Were you at Eurotech? I did. I went to the Eurotech meeting in Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, that would have been fun. Nice place to visit. Was the meeting good? The meeting was fantastic. They had a really great meeting with a lot of technical content and a lot of new project ideas came out of it. Awesome. Welcome back. Well, thank you. Thank you. We also just had our last Ameritech meeting and that went really well as well. That was just a couple of weeks ago in St. Louis. And one of the highlights of the Ameritech meeting is we have our annual award ceremony and we got to name a new fellow to our ranks, which is our highest honor in MTI. And our new fellow is Dale Hefner, who is one of our guests today on our podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> Perfect. Yes. I'm really happy to have both Dale and Deb McCauley with us. We're doing something a little different here today, having two guests at once, but it's great to have them both with us. Dale Hefner has served as the Vice President of Electrochemical Engineering and Manufacturing for 42 consecutive years. Dale has specialized in the specification, design, and application of corrosion-resistant lining systems. In 2022, they joined and became a part of Knight Materials Technologies following their acquisition of Electrochemical. So it's great to have Dale with us. He's an absolute expert in this field, and we're really looking forward to talking with him today. And he's the newest fellow at MTI, having also been involved and served in a lot of leadership positions within MTI over the years and over his career. And then we also have Deborah McCauley with us today. Deborah has 32 years of experience in design, manufacture, inspection, and repair of FRP equipment. She spent the last 23 years between the two companies, DuPont and Comores, after they split off developing and presenting on non-metallics, training seminars, and doing work specifying non-metallic equipment. She's also involved in various committees of ASME Section 10 and RTP1 and other committees that are associated with that. And she's also very involved in MTI. Currently, she's the chair of our board of directors. So it's great to have you guys both with us today. Today, we're going to be talking about polymer-lined steel vessels which is a whole different topic, something really different from anything else we've talked about, but also similar to dual laminate equipment, there's a little bit of overlap there. So we're really looking forward to having this conversation today. Yeah, so I can start off, Dale, maybe this first question will be more appropriate for you as a fabricator, but can you just generally describe what we're talking about today? Sure, Mark. And Heather, thank you for the warm welcome and background. I think having been in the business 42 years, I can be a bit of the historian and give you a little history about how line steel developed. These materials started with things such as rubber lining or pyroflex, which was an asphaltic sheet, where technicians went in and essentially wallpapered the inside of a fabricated steel vessel with a non-metallic type system. Natural rubber was the original material, and then elastomers were developed, such as neoprene and hypalon and chlorobutyl materials. And then the olefins, PVCs and polypros. And late in the 70s, the fluoropolymers came about. And the first fluoropolymer that was bonded to a steel substrate was actually Teflon FEP with a fabric backing. It was marketed under the trade name Armalon, and it was extruded in 24-inch wide sheets. Today, we see a nominal four-foot wide sheet. So there were a lot more weld seams because of the narrow sheet used in bonding of the fluoropolymer vessels back then. But what we're going to talk about is the techniques for bonding, surface prep, bonding, and then welding the seams on these type of materials inside of steel vessels. Thanks. Perfect. This might be a better question for Deb, but Deb, as an end user, what are the drivers for the type of plastic that you're going to use when you're buying a, a piece of equipment or a vessel like this? Certainly the uh, process conditions, your relative corrosion resistance that you need, how high is your temperature? What are your process constituents? All those things matter. Cost also steps into play here. You have to uh, be careful of putting something in that fits. Certainly you have a wide range of costs for installing some of these materials. And then your temperature capability that you can handle. Certainly the last podcast, uh, you do have some lower temperatures with your FRP structures. With steel, you can go a bit higher, but you need to still be careful of that interface between your polymer and your, your metal substrate. Those are really good points, Deb. I'd agree. One of the differentiators is a company's willingness to look at alternate materials of construction. Metallurgy is taught in engineering schools today, and people are very familiar with alloys. 
many companies are reluctant to even look at non-metallic lining systems for corrosive services. They would rather alloy up and go with more expensive alloys when things like carbon steel or 304 stainless won't work. When they get into the really expensive alloys is when they say, hey, is there an alternative here? Could we buy a carbon steel tank and put in a plastic lining that will take the service and the temperature? I think in a lot of cases, it's a company's willingness to consider and understand the non-metallic alternatives. Great point, Dale. Also, how if uh, the non-metallic or the polymer can, the formability of it, how can it be formed to be able to go into, depending on the components of your equipment as yeah. well? I'm sure there's a lot of variables in this, but can you put PTFE lined steel, does that fit neatly in between, say, 316 and Hastoy C2? Like, where does it fit on the price chart of when it makes sense to go to this if it will work rather than the higher alloy? I don't think it fits neatly anywhere, Heather. <laughs> Not that simple. <laughs> it's going to depend on alloy availability, alloy cost, fabricator's shop backlog, the same thing on the lining side. I just wanted to say that one thing I think we want to point out real quick is for this type of equipment, PTFE line steel is not necessarily even an option. Correct, because of the lack of weldability. Yeah, yes. yeah. We're doing other Teflons. I'll throw that term out there so that we can have that yes. conversation, yeah. right? Thanks but, for correcting me. I was just trying to avoid using the word Teflon. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so PTFE in general, is it accurate to say you can't hand weld PTFE? You have to have modified a bit uh, to be able to do it. Just a little bit since you brought up the word Teflon. It was developed in around 1945. And yes, Dale and I were not here yet. So that was before I <laughs> It is a combination of how the word is derived is from poly tetrafluoroethylene and then an arbitrary F ending. So that was te the TE from the poly tetra, the FL from the fluoroethylene, and then the ON from the, it was arbitrary ending. So it was it's Teflon and that's how it was derived. But that was just a, an interesting fun fact I'd share. Yeah. Pretty much the parts are made out of this. They are formed by uh, cold forming and sintering is your signature items here with uh, this type of chain. It has been certainly something that we've worked with for many years, DuPont, and now Comores uh, works with this. Uh, the quick summary is it's a brand. Yes, right? it is. And Correct. A family of polymers. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So specifically, which of the family are used in steel-lined equipment? So typically, it's differentiated by chemical structure and molecular structure. Mm -hmm. You have what's called the fully fluorinated fluoropolymers and the partially fluorinated polymers. The carbon to fluorine bond is the strongest bond known to man. So if it's fully fluorinated, it has terrific chemical resistance and terrific temperature resistance. You can lower the cost and the processability by changing the molecular structure or the elements that are in the fluoropolymer. And that's where you get partially fluorinated materials like a chlorine atom on the material. So there's PDDF, there's ECTFE, there's ETFE that are partially fluorinated fluoropolymers. And the most common fully fluorinated are FEP, PFA, and PTFE. Because of the PTFE processing issues with weldability, companies developed modified PTFEs to make them more melt flow processable. But all the PTFEs were centered not extruded in an extruder because they're not melt flow processable. Yeah, but Dale, you're not making bonded PTFE sheet lined vessels, are you? There are fabric back modified PTFE sheets available that you weld with a PFA rod and a PFA cap strip. And yes, we do those types of materials. Why would somebody use a modified TFE lined vessel versus just PFA? Cost. PFA is the most expensive of the fully fluorinated resins. Okay. okay. PTFE is most economical. And there's a lot of people that understood PTFE for years and years. They had PTFE line pipe, PTFE line valve, so they weren't PTFE line vessels. And with the PFA, you have grades like with metal, but you have various grades. So you can have your, it's a lot of it's on purity and your corrosion resistance that you need, the temperature limits that you have, all those things come into play. But a lot of times you'll modify that PTFE with some of the PFA to make it weldable. So you're getting the best of both worlds on that. So that's what Dale's talking about, where it's usually modified with PFA. Deb, you would bring us to a really interesting point. We should talk supply chain. 
Okay. So these resins are produced by a resin manufacturer, and they are made into pellets and shipped to a toller who manufactures a semi-finished good. They'll put it in an extruder, extrude out a sheet, and have a roll of cloth, and they'll embed the cloth into that sheet. And that's a semi-finished fluoropolymer good. The fabricator or liner, such as my company, we will buy that semi-finished fluoropolymer product and bond it inside of a steel vessel. So Deb brings up a really good point about the different resin grades. So you're going all the way back in the supply chain to the resin manufacturer, and they manufacture different grades. Some are better for extrusion. Some are better for molding. So they tweak the resin for the way it's going to be processed. And the PVDF is another one that has a wide range of homopolymer and copolymer PVDF resins. And the copolymer PVDF is far better for lined steel than the homopolymer because of the expansion and contraction differential between steel and plastic. Good I really thought this was a simple polymer lining. <laughs> and there's really intricate details on Dale was saying, whether it's a homopolymer or copolymer makes a huge difference. And maybe down the road, we'll talk about weld rods. But you've got to be careful that you are welding with this specific type of material that matches what's been modified or what you're using. If not, it's going to be issues. Yeah, in Dual Lamb, when we talked to Brian Lineman, but we talked about how some polymer sheets you'd bond to the FRP through fabric backing, the yep. and then other times you'd chemically etch the the plastic to bond it to the FRP resin. Yeah, uh, with this system where you're bonding a liner to steel, are you always using fabric back sheet? Or is chemical etching and that sort of thing also an option? The chemical etching, sodium etching of unbacked fluoropolymer films was tried back in the 70s, and it didn't work well. These fluoropolymers are anti-stick by nature. So if you put an adhesive right onto the film, you're not going to get a bond. Those other linings we talked about in the very beginning, rubber linings, elastomeric linings, PVC linings, because they don't have the chemical resistance that the fluoropolymers have, the adhesive will actually etch into the sheet and you don't need a fabric backing to bond them. But all the fluoropolymers are anti-stick by nature. So you need that mechanical bond of the fabric into the back of the sheet to adhere your adhesive to bond it to the substrate or for the fiberglass resin to bond onto the liner. In the case of Brian's dual laminate, he did a really good job on the podcast for dual laminate. I was very impressed. On the same vein, we would be using a, you'd have to check your peel strength to make sure that fabric is embedded well enough that it's not going to pull away. So you still use the same ASTM standards that Brian talked about. That's a very important part of this as well when this comes to you. And the fabric can be various things. You can use aramid, you can use glass. So there's also part of that fabric because if permeation were to happen, you'd want to have a decent type of fabric that can stand up to some of the uh, processes that might be getting through and permeating. The right chemical resistance for your process. You don't want to use a, a glass-backed fabric if you've got HF involved. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So can you just clarify, we're dancing around it, but let's just go through and clarify the advantages of the steel-lined equipment compared with dual-laminate equipment. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. So dual-laminate is a really good material and good construction method. The big difference, and Brian had pointed this out, in dual-laminate, you build the plastic liner on a mold or a mandrel, and then you build the fiberglass tank around it. In the case of lined steel, you build the vessel first, prep the welds, prepare the surface, and then you go inside and you bond the lining. Sometimes through a manways, if you have a tank that has an open head, you just go through the opening, you line it with the head off. But that's the real difference. Dual laminate, you're building the liner first and then building the FRP around it. Lined steel, you build the vessel first and then install the lining. As far as advantages and disadvantages, Fire retardancy, many applications, they don't want a fiberglass tank in a flammable, combustible environment. There's pressure rating issues. You'd have to build a pretty thick wall FRP tank for some high pressure applications to be equal to a thinner metal shell. There's issues of mechanical damage, number of tanks that have been hit or struck from the outside um, in dual laminates, where with steel, it would have taken the mechanical impact and the fiberglass starbursts and cracks. And one of the ones that I've had people consider is the failure mode. Usually with a line steel tank, if you do get a pinhole years down the road, it starts as a little pinhole leak in that steel vessel. 
In fiberglass, that can actually attack the resin and the structural matrix of the fiberglass, and you can have a catastrophic failure rather than a pinhole leak. I've had some customers that have taken that into consideration, the potential failure mechanism. I like the chemical resistance of a liner with the structural strength of steel, but I also like the fiberglass option of dual laminate with the corrosion protection on the exterior. I think the the substrate, of course, is, is quite different. And with the steel, you can have higher parameters. You can operate at a little bit higher temperature, that type of thing, than uh, dual laminate. But also your flanges and FRP and dual laminate are uh, limiting. You have to very really be careful. In the FRP dual laminate world, we still use a lot of the flat face. You calc it as a beam. It, it can't take a lot of loads. It, it can be uh, certainly a weak link. And we do use some lap joint flanges, but it's not as often in America as it is in Europe, where that is not something we use all the time. And those flanges, I would say, really are a weak link with the FRP. You really have to design around it, make them robust. It could be an issue with the FRP substrates and that type of thing. I think also people feel more comfortable with steel. I, I always tease my counterparts as being metalheads because that's their whole thinking, oh, it's metal, it's going to be okay. We're going to be strong. I think, as Dale mentioned earlier, in the very beginning of this, some of our plant sites and some of our customers like to think of metal. They're more comfortable with that. It's been around longer. Yeah, viewers, spot on. And I failed to mention the nozzles and the flange concerns with dual laminate, but we've seen that as well. Brian spoke to it extremely well. He has a terrific engineering background and has been in this business a long time and designs the flange nozzles and teaches people on flange makeup for FRP. But it's just common sense that pipe loading on a plastic tank is going to be more challenging than pipe loading on a steel tank. And Bubba with his fork wrench and cheater bar, I don't worry about him breaking a line steel flange as much as I do a, a plastic flange. So you're spot on with pointing that out. Absolutely. With the polymer line steel, can you reline them? Oh, absolutely. That could be another advantage is long-term. You've got two vessels and you take one out, you reline it, you swap them back in. Is that done? Absolutely. There are issues you want to be careful of with relining steel. HCL, for instance, if you have permeation or pinholes, you can get chloride contamination on the surface of the metal. In addition to making sure the welds are right for lining, you may have to do a chloride test in the metal to make sure it's not contaminated or use a, a solution to get the chlorides out of the surface of the metal before you blast it and line it. So there are things to be thought about when you're considering relined equipment, but absolutely, if it was lined once, it could be stripped and lined again. Okay. So what about disadvantages? I think certainly with the expansion rates are different. You have to always worry about expansion rates of a polymer versus your steel. Also, you could have permeation failures. It depends on the corrosion rate of your metal, your substrate. If you've got a weld that opens or a pinhole, like Dale was mentioning, there are some processes that we're using that the uh, corrosion rate on that steel or on the metal is very quick. And you don't have a lot of time or a lot of options to hang in there for two months or whatever that is. It can be very severe. You can also have some monolithic type of a construction with the dual laminates. So you can have some harder fit up, I'll say, some fit up issues with the metal. Because with the FRP, it tends to all be something you can lay out, you can look at. It's a little forgiving. I'm not going to say cheap, but you can use your rounded corners and you can do things with FRP a lot easier than you can with steel to make things fit. The difference in coefficient of thermal expansion between the steel and the plastic is also a tremendous point, Deb. And I'll go back and be the historian again. When they first started putting these fabric back floor polymer sheets on steel, they used a traditional epoxy grips the fabric backing very tight, but it has very low elongation. So when the temperature would cycle in inch per degree temperature, the plastic was moving five to 10 times more than the metal. So what would happen is the stress would propagate along to the only place where it wasn't bonded and that was beneath the weld seam. When you used a rigid epoxy in the early days, you got a lot of weld seam cracks, and that was a problem. Now, two things were done to, to combat that. One is they went from a thermoset rigid epoxy to an elastomeric contact adhesive, a rubber cement, if you will, that acted like a rubber band between the steel and the plastic, letting the plastic do what it wanted to do uniformly over the surface. That is also where we brought the cap strip welding in 
because back in those days, they used single rod or three rod joint construction. And when those stresses were propagating along to the joint, they would crack at the notches. The cap strip, you put a rod joint in the root weld, and then you put a cap strip fully welded over the top to distribute those stresses over the wider area. And it gets the edge of your weld out where it's bonded, where the fabric is, and moves your heat-affected zone away from the plastic weld where they're actually joined. Many years, that elastomeric adhesive was used. The challenge with elastomers is they don't take the temperature that the thermosets take. So along came toughened epoxies and modified epoxies with elastomeric nanoparticles that give much more elongation than the old traditional epoxies. In old epoxy, if you got 5% elongation, you were lucky. The toughened epoxies today get 50 to 80% elongation. So you have the ability to take that difference in coefficient of thermal expansion between the metal and the plastic by the new epoxies and adhesives that are available today. Good point, Dale. What one more, I think, disadvantage or where, where dual laminates have an advantage is if, if you can build a mold, it can be dual laminate. And a lot of the molds that you build in the fiberglass arena and dual laminate arena are wood. So you can build all kinds of stuff and unusual shapes, unusual sizes, and then you can go ahead and, and put dual laminate on it. It's a little bit easier, I think, than going to metal and trying to have things come to you um, in a certain odd shapes, some of the newer things. I always say, if you can dream it, you can build it on a mold, you can have it out of FRP or dual laminate. You can line it. So it gives you some more flexibility there. If you got some really unusual piece, I would always go towards the dual laminate arena if you can. I want to reiterate one thing that I, you guys have, have maybe alluded to a couple of times, but I, I want to just say it very directly for end users listening to the podcast because it's important. On this type of equipment, the steel has one temperature capability. The plastic liner has another temperature capability. Probably the limiting component is the adhesive. And so it's very easy on this type of equipment to think, oh, I've got PFA is good to 450F, no problem. No, you need to know what your adhesive is. You need to know the temperature capability of that, particularly if you're talking about a vacuum situation. Not only pay attention to the adhesive, but when you're buying this kind of equipment, make sure that the capabilities of the adhesive are captured in your QC data package with the vessel so that years later, what it is, because that can be a real problem later on older equipment. You don't know what kind of adhesive was used and then you don't know what you got. Yeah. The temperature ratings on the adhesives today are the partially fluorinated materials, PVDF, ECTFE, and ETFE, will not withstand the temperatures that the adhesive will. The fully fluorinated, the FEP, PFA, and the modified PTFE, you're absolutely correct. The adhesive is the limiting factor. All right. Well, with that, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Megan Oaks from BASF. As a reliability engineer, I understand firsthand many of the challenges that processing industry companies face, and I believe sharing technical resources and knowledge across the industry is vital to improving safe, sustainable, and reliable plant operations. That's why I serve as co-chair of the MTI Global Solutions Symposium. In 2024, the symposium returns to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, February 26th through the 28th. And the committee is proud to offer two keynotes featuring topics for sustainable processed industries. In addition, we have scheduled five tracks with more than 35 presentations, which focus on emerging technology, sustainability and reliability, non-metallic, bioprocessing and corrosion mechanism, and knowledge management. The event also includes our Global Solutions Marketplace, where 11 exhibit hours are available during networking reception, meals, and breaks. But limited booths remain. On behalf of the Symposium Committee, I hope you will join us in Baton Rouge to connect and learn with some of the best in the process industry. Early bird registration is now open through January 26, 2024. To register, purchase a booth, or learn more, visit mti-global.org MTI Symposium. So Dale, you mentioned cap strips earlier, and I'd like to delve down that rabbit hole. I'd like to start by telling a story. I got the opportunity to go over and support a plant in China, and I was there for a different reason, but they happened to open up a one of these tanks, steel with a bonded plastic liner. I believe it was PFA, and they had a, a blister that was in an area where it was going to cause a problem. It was near a corner, and it was probably going to crack or cause some sort of stress riser. So we decided we needed to repair this blister. So 
we found a local company in China we had no experience with, didn't really have procedures. So we went to the MTI repair and alteration of line equipment reference, which was great. I could basically just pull that out. And we used it as a procedure because we didn't have one at the time. This was back in Dow Corning days where we just didn't have that much of that type of equipment. So we followed the procedure to the letter. The repair went really well. I flew back to the States, got an attaboy and a nice pat on the back. And, and then my colleagues at our plant in Wales found out about the repair and they had been the original designers of the equipment and the manufacturer of the equipment had been in, in the UK and they went, you did what? Because we put cap strips over the repair area and, and they're like, oh no, our fabricator said that's the worst thing you can do. It's going to fail immediately. And so they escalated it to management. We got to shut the plant back down and redo this repair. And I can't believe they screwed this up. And of course it was pretty traumatic for me. I'm like, so I, I actually called Dale Keeler at the time who was at, at Dow and somebody I really trusted and respected him, this type of thing. I said, what's the deal? And he started laughing. He said, yeah, you got it. You stepped into the age old debate, my friend. He said, in Europe, they don't typically use cap strips. In the US, we tend to like them. And there's two schools of thought. And it's not real clear what the right answer is. And so as a result of that experience, we ended up kicking off an MTI project where we evaluated cap strips and tried to determine the the relative merits of, of whether they were, were good or bad. And so just a real quick summary, we learned several things. It was interesting. The, the project looked at PBF 2850, which is a, our copolymer, ECTFE 901, which is commonly referred to as HALAR, and then uh, PFA 451. And so we created welds with and without cap strips, and we did a creep rupture testing, basically. Imagine hanging a weight off of this weld and measuring the elongation for hours, which ends up turning into days and months. And in some cases, I think we were close to a year. So at different stress levels, you basically look at the sample as it progresses through the three stages of creep until it ruptures. And you can develop a curve based on that of time to creep rupture relative to load. And so we were basically looking for differences, right? Whether the cap stripped weld was better or worse than the weld that was not capped. The other thing we evaluated was one of the criticisms of cap strips is people claim that if you have offset in the weld, if the two sheets are not perfectly aligned, let's say there's a step from one sheet to the other, uh, the criticism is that, well, the cap strip's just being used to, to hide that. And, and there's not a lot of data about or requirements on what the maximum or minimum offset is. And so that was the other thing we explored is we went to the 20% offset that's outlined in RTP1 as an upper limit for dual AM. And, and created wells with that offset and capped and not capped those. Anyway, I talked too long about this. It was a very interesting project. We had some neat outcomes out of that. It's available for, for MTI members. So Mark, this is an excellent opportunity for me to address this. And I appreciate it. I worked with you on that project to evaluate the raw and the strip. And also like Dale Keeler, who's actually been in this industry a few years longer than I am, is another historian. <laughs> It is an age-old battle between the Europeans and North America, rod versus strip. And yes, I've heard the, oh, you use the strip to cover up things. <laughs> when we first evaluated the rod versus the rod and strip project with MTI, the values came out very similar. And it wasn't a glaring difference. And I said to you, Mark, either one, if done correct, will work. And you looked at me and said, Dale, you'd never said that before. <laughs> and I said, okay, I am an advocate of rod and strip. I've fought this battle for years and I feel more comfortable with it. But if either one is done correctly, they can meet the needs of the service environment. Now, the one thing I would caution people, if you've got a shop that's doing it one way or the other, don't force them to change their documented procedures to a procedure they're not comfortable with just because you're being pushed by another area. Completely, completely agree, yes. That's probably the biggest takeaway. You're right. Yeah. I think you need to work with the fabricator on what they're comfortable with. It's their warranty anyway, and they've got to stand behind their work. Go with what they're comfortable with. Yeah, you're right, because there, was, there wasn't much of a difference. There were differences, right? We did find things, but not enough to force a fabricator to, to deviate from their standard practices. Totally agree. On the offset, I'd like to touch on that too. There's a huge difference between cap strips and dual laminate and line steel, and a huge difference in worrying about offset between dual laminate and line steel. Steve talked about how they removed the glass back from the edge of the sheet to do the flow fusion welding. 
And then some cases, dual laminate companies will come and put cap strip there to rebuild up the material that they've taken away when they've ground into the edge of the sheet. We don't do that in line steel. We don't remove any glass at the edge on the back of the sheet to build a liner. So we don't have to worry about building that back up in the back. Our whole reason for doing it is because we're working from the inside and we want our sheets are butted up and aligned with an epoxy adhesive on the back. So the offset isn't that much. They're going to be a little one because of the different thicknesses in, in the epoxy. I'm going to push back a little bit on that though, Dale, okay. real quick. So we talked about RTP1 has maximum 20% offset on dual land. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to push back and say, I don't think you could maintain a 20% max offset on a bonded liner on steel. I think you're probably right. But at the same time as I don't think we could maintain it in all configurations, I'm not worried about it. The steel is structurally holding my liner in place when we're welding. When we're building a liner in the dual laminate shop, you're building a tube and it's moving around. And you're really worried about the offset because everything's moving. The steel tank supports the liner and keeps it in place. And whether it's 20%, 30%, or 40%, I've never in 42 years had a failure due to offset. We're not concerned about it. We're an ISO company. So if we add problems, we corrective actions and we go back and look at the problem, find out what the root cause is, and we tweak our processes. Never had an offset issue. So whether it's 20%, 30%, I certainly wouldn't want something 50%, but I don't think we have those issues. And I think it's because the steel's holding the sheet in place, where with the dual laminate, you're building a loose liner essentially, and it's moving around until you reinforce it by putting the FRP on the outside. Do either of you, does your company or Deb, have you asked for a limit on offset on this type of product? Not for the steel side. Certainly we follow RTP1. Not the division, but the mandatory 12 section. That is what we follow for dual laminates, and we follow it very closely. However, for the steel lined, we don't really, no, we don't have a restriction around the offset. So what are the design details that really need to be managed for the polymer lined steel? Like flanges, how are flanges designed? What are the special considerations that really need to be thought through? The joint is important. In our case, you're butting the sheets up alongside each other. One of them to be close to the same plane, but we don't worry about percentage. And then you want to clean the joints, remove any adhesive. You do what's called being the joint, depending on the diameter of your weld rod. And you want all that butted, veed, and cleaned before you start the weld rod process for the root weld. And then after the root weld's put in, you grind it flush. You do a spark test of the root weld. You want it 100% pinhole free. And then you do the cap strip weld to distribute the stresses over the wider area. And then you do a helium leak test. That's what we would typically follow. Yes. What you just described there in terms of the methodology, one of the things that, that we've done a couple of times, and I know some other customers have, is a hot water test. I guess that would be after all the stuff you just described, would it? That'd be on the final product. But to get both your thoughts on that as, as a part of a QC of the line vessel. What we've started to do is another NDE type of a test is the dye penetrate test. It's an ASTM standard. And we go ahead, it's a simple method. We're looking for micro cracks and macro porosity. We wet the part. It's like a gel food coloring. And we go ahead and we put that on and you wipe it away. You know, you wash it off and then you would use a UV light. And we're looking for some cracks out that perhaps you would not see to the eye. And we have found spark testing is a, is a very good method. It's been around forever. We've used it. However, it's not perfect like anything else. You're gonna, you may miss some. Does it mean that what you put in service doesn't have an issue down in the near future? So this is just another way to look for any of these stress cracking. And we have instituted that we do use it now. So that's something we've added to our, our end. We do not use the, the hot water. We don't always use that. So that's not uh, something that, that we do uh, more than the helium leak test or the spark test or the your typical hydro test. So um, again, we've gone with this dye penetrant test as well. What's interesting to me about that is both helium and the PT test I, I see as being, is checking the welds, right? Looking yep. for, you say, boys, cracks, that kind of thing. The, the hot water test I see is testing a different thing. You're looking for, was the adhesive properly applied and, and the, the sheet pressed into the adhesive such that you've got good bond strength everywhere. We've had blisters show up in the middle of a sheet far away from all the welds as a result of that hot yeah. water test, which is going to be a blister later in process, right? If you 
right? Deviation behind the sheet. Anyway, just a, a comment. No, no I, I appreciate that. Dale, is that a common test that you do, the hot water test? It is common. We have some customers that specify it on every line tank. I prefer to see it done on contact adhesive systems. They take lower temperatures. We'll do the heated hot water test there. Mark is right. It's not inspecting the welds. It's looking for air entrapment. You heat that hot water test up, that air is going to expand. If you've got a loose area, it's going to show up. You go back in, you do a tap test, and you repair any loose areas before the vessel ship. Yes, we have a boiler, we have a water storage tank, and we frequently do a heated hot water test. Now, we would for very severe applications, but it's not a routine thing that we ever do. But we do for severe applications. Interesting. And Dale, we've talked about the helium test a couple of times. I think we need to make it clear that is a unique offering from your company only. I think Deb and I have both used it heavily and, and value yep. it as a technique, but without giving everything away, can you talk a little bit about how you're doing that? Sure. So it came over as a part of a technology transfer from Europe where they were doing the helium leak test on line fluoropolymer lined equipment for lethal service applications. And they wanted to find pinholes that were smaller than a spark tester could find. So that's where the development started. You would basically have at least two points, one where you inject helium and one where you detect it to make sure it's worked its all way all through the vessel, sometimes more. You go with a mass spectrometer and you look for pinhole leaks for helium coming through the weld seam. There's some things that are trade secrets that are very important to understand. The pressure that's injected, where you locate these ports, and the dwell time of the helium behind there. Because helium will permeate different fluoropolymers at different rates, and you'll have helium molecules all over the place, and your mass spectrometer will be clogging off continuously. So there's a dwell time issue as well. But that's basically it. It's ejecting helium behind the plastic seams, looking for holes smaller than a spark tester can find, and using a mass spectrometer. And so one other integrity technique, we've talked a little bit about visual, and I, I don't want to just breeze over that for end users that aren't as familiar with looking at this type of equipment. But when we talk about visual, I, I think for the most part, we're talking about putting your light right on the surface, right? Getting that bloom of the plastic to where you can see if you've got a crack or something and that light doesn't travel past that crack. And just in case people haven't seen that, I, I just want to clarify there, right? We're talking about take your flashlight, literally place it right on the plastic so the light's shining down into the depths and you guys want to add to that or talk about that at all? Yeah. So our inspection mark of the root welds includes a mag light visual inspection along every inch, looking for white spots, inclusion, lack of flow fusion, but it's a good visual. The parameters are defined, what we're looking for. We have a no-go, go gauge that the welders use to see what's going to be accepted or rejected at that type of inspection. But yes, a good light with a visual is very important and knowing what to look for. And if you find a defect, is it not a big deal to gouge it out and just reweld it? Yeah, we don't really use the word gouge, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that's called rework. It's not really a repair. You found an area that you want to rework as part of the inspection program, and you're taking a little die grinder and you're grinding the defect. You're depositing more weld rod in the area, and then grinding it flush and respark testing and rear visual inspection. All right, so. I'm going to just put my ASME hat on here again. So a lot of the inspection criteria and that type of thing, what we use is an ASME RTP-1 because Section 10 doesn't worry about liner as much. They worry about the structure. That's part of the air bona fide code there. But the RTP-1 is all about corrosion barrier and what to look for. So in the thermoplastic area, which is mandatory Section 12, they list acceptance criteria there. And we follow that. So they would list whether it's surface pits or foreign inclusions or dents or blisters or cracks, what's acceptable, what's not. The depth they give to you, they talk about all kinds of stuff, even with the fiber backing, snags, tears, knots, what you look for. And I have found this to be probably some of the best guidance um, are, are out there that's around, that it is a code requirement because it's ASME. So what we use uh, when we go into a, a shop I would have this with my back pocket and pull it out as a cheat sheet and look at it because sometimes you're allowed to have a certain thickness. You're allowed to have a surface pit, maybe not deeper than a tenth of a sheet thickness, but you have to have a criteria, I feel, to go in. 
And we have more and more inspection, I'll say, folks that come in that maybe are newer to the system. We have certainly quite a few new folks coming in looking at things, and and they always worry about the steel. Oh, we got to have a person that knows steel. So I always step up and say, wait a minute, the most important thing here is your plastic. Things that don't clang, that's the most important thing here. So um, that's where I'm always going. And and this is the criteria I use. And again, it's, it's right out of ASME RTP and it is mandatory section 12. And I'll refer to that quite a bit. There's good images on there too, right? It's not just- Yes, there are. Yep. Really good drawings to help understand. The one uh, integrity method I, I don't think we touched on that I just wanted to add for sake of completeness is tap testing. Yes. Uh, when we talked about boys, obviously you're using something gentle. I always think of the plastic coated handle on a pair of channel locks or something like that as a good, if you tap that on a sheet and it's not bonded, you'll, you'll definitely hear a different sound. Yep. Good point. Anyone with experience with fluoroplastics knows that they permeate. How does permeation occur in this type of construction and how can you manage it and plan for it? How I like to describe it is as far as relative to, to permeation, the size of your molecule really matters here. So physically, very small molecules can penetrate, whether it's through a gas, a fluid, vapor, through the membrane or the material membrane of a solid. And they can pass through that structure of a polymer. And that tends to happen. It doesn't mean that your um, liner has failed because there is going to be some permeation. But it is something where people think, oh, it'll never permeate. Once we have this thing lined, it's good forever. It's never going to permeate. There will be some permeation. Yes, it's a matter of what happens with that. It's a matter of physically the, the rate of the permeation makes a difference on that type of thing. I could talk all day on permeation. I, I know, because it's something that is misunderstood in our industry, I think. Let me take you back to the first time you probably experienced permeation. You came home from the fair with that helium balloon. <laughs> there you go. Just giddy about that balloon going up and bopping against the ceiling until the next morning when you came down and that balloon was almost completely deflated. And remember I said almost laying on the ground. You just experienced helium permeation through a polymer. The polymer wasn't degraded. The balloon was still in perfect condition, but the helium had gotten through it. That's permeation. So what is permeation? It's absorption and then diffusion. So the permeant absorbs into the polymer, into the amorphous region between the crystalline polymers. I like to explain it like a bowl of spaghetti. The pasta is the polymer chain and the areas between the polymer are amorphous region. So your permeant absorbs into that amorphous region of the polymer structure. When full absorption occurs, then diffusion through the polymer happens. And that's what happened to your balloon. The mm -hmm. balloon absorbed the permeant. When full absorption occurred, diffusion happened through it. Now you gotta keep in mind, there's two kinds of permeation. There's pure permeation of, of a permeant going through an unattacked polymer. Then there's permeation due to chemical attack. And that takes you back to pick the right material. Because if the material is chemically attacked and the chains, polymer chains break down, permeation is going to happen, absorption and diffusion much quicker. So you got to look at it in the, in the pure form and also in the case of chemical or thermal attack. But it all comes back to Fickin's law. That describes the relationship between the rate of diffusion and the three factors that affect it. And Mark, you'd asked about this. And those three factors are the differential, like the delta T or the delta P, and the thickness of the material and the surface area. So if you look at Fickian's law, it will describe that and give you the relationship between the rate of diffusion through the material. You also asked at one point, Mark, about is thicker better. It helps. A thinner liner is going to absorb and permeate quicker than a thicker liner. You got to be careful of putting a lining in too thick and having stress issues and cracking. It's not a linear function. If 60 mils lasts 60 months, 90 mils won't last 90 months. <laughs> right. So it's it's not a linear function. But permeation can be evaluated and the right material can be selected for your process. Knowing what you have up front, really having a good description of your process constituents, your temperatures, 
cycling makes a huge difference too. How many cycles are you going through it? And when you have a quick change in temperature, that makes a difference on this type of thing. So it, it really, the more parameters, the better for a lined system. That temperature you're talking about is huge. That it delta is. heat is a driving force trying to push that permeate yes. into the polymer and through it and overcome the bond strength and blister. And that's where one of the age-old arts of acid brick come into play is to cut the temperature back that a lining is going to see on a steel substrate. We're going to have a presentation at the Global Symposium with MTI in February where they're going to talk about the old age art of chemical resistant masonry and how it's still a good material of construction today. And it's the brick setting up a temperature protection and a mechanical protection of a membrane on a substrate. We're going we're to have another episode on that type of equipment. Yeah, we'll get into it in, in depth there. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention about permeation on these types of linings is I've seen personally, when you take this type of equipment out of service, you can see the blisters grow very rapidly when the equipment's opened up, the chemicals removed, the pressure's off, the temperatures come down. So we have tended to always prioritize if we're opening up this type of equipment, we try to open it up, get it clean, do what we need to do and close it back up, get, get it back in line. Do you guys agree with that? Yes, uh, we, we, we try to do the same. And I will also say to have anybody do a repair or, or do anything with something that's permeated, we're very careful. You have to have safety protection, your PPE, your personal protection, very, very high to do this because it would release some fumes. And you don't know if it's permeated. You get to be just so careful with when you weld and heat it up and get those molecules moving and the fumes that come off. We try to degas things before we go into them or do anything. Certainly try to uh, do what you can. But there are times when you're going to try to do a repair and it's really important to be careful what fumes you may be exposed to. Typically, you're talking full respirator and outside air, the whole bit. But no, we do the same thing, Mark. If we know what process it's been in and what it might have in it, we are trying to get that thing closed as soon as we can. MGI has done a terrific project on repairing polymeric equipment that has been exposed to service. And what you do about that permeant that has absorbed halfway into the film hasn't completely diffused yet, but you need to make that repair. And there's a terrific project that was completed by MTI in this area. First of its kind, never studied before. I have that book. I have pages falling out of it. I love that book. (laughs) Yeah, you want to talk about welder certification a little bit, which is also part of RTP1, but that came out of the American Welding Society and the ASTM C 1147 test. But I know that's an important part of our traveler and our QC package is that all welders are certified. Yep. And that is per the code again here. And also what you had just referenced, yeah, we have, just like in metal, you have weld procedures, WPSs you need to uh, send in and submit and qualifications. These welders have to be qualified for that particular grade of material. And they need to have it certified within that length of time that's designated to have them be qualified to be welding that material. And as we brought up a little bit earlier, it's very important that the weld rod matches your base film or sheet. That's very important. Just because you're qualified to weld a fully fluorinated polymer doesn't mean you still can weld anything. You have to be certified. You have to be qualified for that particular type or grade that you have. And I reference a steel here where just because you can weld 304 stainless doesn't mean you're going to be able to jump in and do a 316L, you know, type thing. So you need to have that same type of thing. And we do look at weld procedures. We require them for both dual laminate and line steel. So we we are really trying to follow that. Almost sounded like a metalhead there, Deb. <laughs> oh, I hope not. <laughs> but it is applicable. Just because you can weld PVC doesn't mean you're going to weld PFA. That's right. You bet. I guess the distinction, though, is if you're buying a steel pressure vessel, a code vessel, a lot of that stuff's taken care of for you or mandatory. Right. And you can have some confidence that if you're going to a code shop, they're following the law and building this thing per code. If you're going to buy a steel vessel with a bonded plastic liner, the onus is on you as the customer to make sure that fabricator knows what requirements you're expecting and then follows them. It's not quite as controlled in that respect. Again, I, I agree. They're worried more about the substrate. However, the AWS has really been helpful. We used to use a code from uh, Europe, DVS, 
Now we are going over and the AWS, I think, has really stepped up in the Polymer arena and given us some more things like these weld procedures, WPSs. We require them throughout now, which before I don't think was nearly as strict as it is now. And everybody has to be qualified and we have that on file. And that's something that is a requirement. I think it's getting better, but you're right. When you get something that's coming from a mill or coming from a shop and it's, they got code welders, where we're trying to do the same thing with your polymers as well, the lining. You're absolutely right, Mark. This lining of, of steel vessels is not codified, okay? But there are plenty of standards out there that we can use. NACE now AMP has all the surface prep standards for preparing the metal before you put an adhesive on and bond a sheet. The AWS has the plastic welding requirements for plastic welders. ASTM has C1147 to test and qualify welders. They have ASTM D903 to do the peel test for the fabric backing bond to the back of the fluoropolymer. All of those fluoropolymer resins have ASTM standards on the manufacturer of the resins, just like the alloys have ASTM standards to make the alloys. So a lot of the standards are there. But no, you're right. It isn't in a code at this point for line steel vessels. Yeah. The point is just if, if the customer doesn't have the kind of internal standards and, and things like Kimor's does, buyer beware. Just you got to do some more work on this stuff. At a very simple high level, and I've said this for years, if you select the right material for the service and you look at that whole hierarchy of rubbers, elastomers, PVC, polypro, PVDF, ECTFE, ETFE, FEP, PFA, and you go right up the chain, select the right material for the chemistry and the temperature. You bond it properly, and that's surface profile, weld prep, getting the entrapped air out, all of that, bond it properly, and you make the joints with the highest degree of integrity that you can. And that is the the plastic welding, the cap strip, if you prefer, the helium leak testing and the spark testing. If you pick the right material, you bond it right, and you make the seams correctly, the system's going to work. We're going to try to put together some links in the show notes for all of these resources that we referred to today. And I have a feeling that with the combined 75 years of experience between the two of you, we could keep on talking for another couple of hours about this topic, (laughs) but we're going to have to wrap it up for today. But I just want to thank you both so much for joining us. It's been really a fun conversation and just full of so much experience and knowledge here. So thank you guys very much for your time and for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you all for doing it. What a, just a a great time to do it. And I felt so honored to be a part working with Dale's. Gosh, number one, your knowledge is just uh, unsurpassed. And I'm just so thrilled to to be in the same room with you here as as a MTI fellow and and a friend I've had for so many years. You've always mentored me and helped me. So thank you. Oh, Deb, you're so kind. And the feelings are mutual. Thank you very much. Thanks again for joining us today, both Deborah and Dale. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversations with subject matter experts discussing materials-related challenges and successes of the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Join us next time.